Let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. As we begin our Advent series, Prepare the Way, we're looking at various ways that we prepare for the coming of Jesus, celebrating His first coming at Christmas, but also anticipating His second coming in His return. So we look at these first few verses here of Hebrews chapter 10. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for Me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about Me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. This is the Word of the Lord. What does this passage have to do with Advent? As we read it, did you notice anything that has to do with Advent or Christmas? It doesn't mention Mary or Joseph. It doesn't mention the baby Jesus. There's one, messia, one, one passage, Old Testament thing quoted here, but it's not even one of those big messianic prophecies from Isaiah. It's a quote from Psalm 40. So, what does this have to do with Advent? If you were reading and listening carefully, you may have noticed three clues in answer to that question. The first two are in a single verse. Verse 5. Let's read verse 5 together. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. So the first reference in that verse to Advent is the phrase, When Christ came into the world. 
Advent is the season of waiting. It's the season of preparing for Christ to come into the world, first at Christmas and then again. The second reference is a phrase later in that same verse, a body you prepared for me. That is a reference to the incarnation when God took on human flesh and became one of us in the person of Jesus. And then a third reference to Advent is in verse 7, where we read this. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. Who's speaking in that verse? Who's the I? It's sort of a unique circumstance because it's actually Jesus, but the author of Hebrews is putting words in Jesus' mouth as if Jesus is saying these words. According to verse 5, it's written about him in the scroll. Well, that's a reference to the Old Testament, of course. And it says he came to do God's will. So those three things brought together point to one of the most important questions we ask at this time of year. And that is, why? Why did God become human? It's an extraordinary claim. There's no other world religion makes this claim that their God became a human being. It's a crazy thing if you think of it. And yet, Christians say that's exactly what happened. God became human. So why do we make this claim? And if it's true, why would God do that? Well, first, let's just pause for a moment this morning. The weight of what we've already talked about far outstrips the silliness of this season. Santa, Rudolph, sleighs, presents, get-togethers, Christmas cheer. It's all this frilly stuff. But the author of Hebrews takes us right to the meaning of it all, of why we celebrate Christmas. Even manger scenes and the Christmas story from Luke 2 do little more than hint at the answer to this question. Why? Why would God come and become flesh? All the way from the glories of heaven to be born to this obscure human couple on their way to Bethlehem? Why? Well, there's a very serious, very important reason why, and it comes down to a three-letter word. I think I heard it. Sin. That's the three-letter word. We have a sin problem. You have a sin problem. I have a sin problem. We all have a sin problem. Our text talks about this. Verse 2 says people are feeling guilty for sin. Verse 3 says Animal sacrifices are a reminder of our sins. And all throughout the rest of this passage, it talks about just how difficult this sin problem is to resolve. It's the one problem that never goes away. It's been a problem for every person, every civilization, ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden. And even in our sophisticated age, when most people rarely think about sin... 
It's one of those old-fashioned concepts that they don't believe is really true. Funny thing is, it still remains true. Whether you realize it or not, you're a sinner. So am I. So is everyone. The war to end all wars. World War I. Did it end wars? No. Little more than 20 years passed and we entered World War II. And there have been many wars since then. Another war in Europe erupted two years ago when Russia invaded Ukraine. So many people have died. So many people have been displaced. So much money has been spent destroying things and blowing things up. And there's no end in sight. And then, a couple of months ago, the Hamas terrorist invaded Israel, starting a war there. And the consequences are and continue to be devastating. War is an awful thing. And it exposes the truth about human beings. We are desperately sinful, wicked people who can't get along. That's the truth. Even in our country, sin is a major problem with drug addiction, with gun violence, with child abuse, rape and murder. It turns out we have a very strong desire to do whatever we want and we think we should get away with it. Which is why we need more than just good laws. You need good laws, but you need those laws enforced. There has to be serious consequences for lawbreakers or people will break the law with glee. And it turns out that's exactly what happens. Crime and lawlessness is going to ruin everybody's life unless someone says there's a consequence for doing so. Look at places like San Francisco. Laws against loitering, laws against defecating in public, laws against stealing, they're just not enforced. So you have all sorts of that happening every day. There's an epidemic of homelessness and drug addiction. And now I'm told if you live in San Francisco, what you do when you get home, you park your car, you leave the windows down, you leave the doors unlocked, and you leave the trunk open. It's the only way to protect from being Violated by criminals. They'll break in just to see if there's something in there to get. And they'll never be caught and they'll never be prosecuted. And so the cycle just continues. It's horrible. We have videos of lawless mobs who show up at convenience stores and Target stores and help themselves to everything on the shelves. And they all come at once and they all leave at once. And I don't know that any of them are ever caught or prosecuted. It's crazy the time we live in. And quite frankly, the same thing would happen right here because people are not different. We're all the same deep down. We would try to get away with that here if we could. Even church people who go to church every Sunday have a sin problem. Some people like to think of us as a bunch of hypocrites. We're all hypocrites sitting in church because they say we all try to make it look like we are not as sinful as we really are probably true. We are more sinful than we let on. We have a sin problem. That's why we come to church. Not because we're so perfect. 
but because we know the One who is, who died for us in our place. We have a Savior who forgives sin. And our sin problem would be way worse if Jesus didn't live inside of our hearts that helps restrain us from some of those impulses. Sin has consequences, though, even beyond just people who commit sins. Sin is just systemic in the world. It's invaded everything. Because of sin, I heard the statistic last week, Twenty to 30,000 people will die of the flu bug this year. It's true every year. Mostly old and sick people. Twenty to 30,000 people die from the flu. Then you have DeVos Children's Hospital this morning full of sick kids dealing with RSV and pneumonia. And then people have heart attacks and cancer and mental illness and accidents. And all of this, all of this is a result of sin. People might not want to think about sin, but it's all around us everywhere you look. And it's even inside our own heart. This is the truth that the Bible says. But God loved the world and loved us far too much to allow sin to ruin everything. So what did He do? In the Old Testament, He set up a series of sacrifices that people could offer as substitutes for their sinfulness. Burnt offerings, grain offerings, fellowship offerings, guilt offerings, and sin offerings. Every one of them required people to offer something of value to God. They would lose it because of their sin. So what was this like? Let's just say there's a man. He, he finds out, he realizes he committed a sin. He didn't even know he did it at the time. It was unintended. But as he looks back, he thinks, I, I messed up. I crossed the line. I, I sinned. So what was required of him back in those days? Well, he would take his prized bull to the priest, one of the most valuable possessions he has. He would put his hands on the head of the bull and confess his sins. And then the priest would offer the man a sword and he would plunge the sword into the unsuspecting animal. The priest would grab a basin, catch the blood as it flowed out, and they would together watch the life drain out of this extremely valuable creature. And it would slump to the ground and die. And the priest would take that blood and sprinkle it in particular places in the tabernacle and later the temple and then offer a prayer like this, O oh God, Forgive the sins of this penitent man. Receive the offering of this bull instead of himself. We pray. That's the ritual. Or one like it, if you weren't wealthy enough to own a bull, you could offer an animal of lesser value, but you had to offer something. That's the sacrificial system that existed for thousands of years. Not just for the Israelites, but every nation. Every nation had similar rituals, sacrifices that were made to their gods. And the author of Hebrews was very familiar with this because we don't know who the author of this book was, but likely was a Jewish scholar, someone who knew Judaism very, very well. Because of the way he writes, it's obvious. But what he says is astounding in this chapter. He makes a staggering claim in verse 4. Let's read it together. 
But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In other words, animal sacrifices don't remove sin. What? Well then, why did God institute them? Why were these people killing and slaughtering all these innocent animals for thousands of years if it didn't resolve the sin problem? Well, the author reminds us this sacrifice system of sacrifices was a very visual reminder of the consequences of sin. You transgress one of God's laws, it will cost you something. You don't do it for free. That's an important thing to know. But even the Old Testament people knew these animal sacrifices were a substitute offering. They were the guilty one, not the animal, but somehow they transferred their guilt to the animal so they could be absolved. It's sort of a substitutionary atonement. But it was temporary. God really wasn't all that interested in the sacrifices, come to find out. In fact, that's what the Bible, even in the Old Testament, says. David says this in Psalm 51. You, God, do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Because you can run through a sacrifice and it never really hits home. What God wants is a repentant heart. He wants us to be sorry for not walking with Him, not loving Him. Are we sorry? That's what He wants. Ultimately, every animal sacrifice pointed to the one final sacrifice that would be made by Jesus. Paul explains this in Galatians 4. Let's read this together. But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. And he makes it more explicit in 2 Corinthians 5, where he uses the language of sacrifice. He says, God made Him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This is why Jesus came. Jesus came to do God's will. And that will, first of all, was to live a righteous, holy, pure life that is God-honoring. So Jesus came to obey God's laws. He came to live the life we can't live. And in doing so, He fulfilled all the requirements of God's laws. The Jewish leaders accused Jesus of being a lawbreaker. They especially zeroed in on what they thought were violations of the Sabbath laws. But what they accused Him of violating were their own things around the law. Jesus never violated the Sabbath. And they accused Him of being a blasphemer. That's why they crucified Him. But He wasn't a blasphemer either. He was simply speaking the truth they didn't want to hear. Jesus never broke a law. He's the only person who's ever lived whose 
ever lived a perfect life, never making a single mistake, never transgressing God's laws once. Someone had to live that life for us because we can't live it. That's the first part. The second part is He came to be the final sacrifice, sacrifice for sin. So rather than having the high priest on the Day of Atonement every year in the Jewish calendar make sacrifices and acknowledge all the sin of the people, our author says this, but our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down, meaning he finished his job in the place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. That's the life-changing truth we celebrate when we partake in the sacrament. We remember that all of our sins have been paid for and all of, it is, all of us have been made new through what Jesus did on the cross. But if that's true, if all of us have been made holy, then why are we so unholy? There's two contrasting verses in this passage that help us understand that. Verse 10 says, And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. All right, all you English experts, the highlighted phrase, what's the tense of the verb? Past perfect? I think I'm not an English expert. I think that's it. Past perfect, meaning it's an action that has already been completed in the past. It's a done deal. We have been made holy. You have been made holy by God through Christ. It's done. It's finished. There's nothing left to do. That's the spiritual reality for someone who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's a miracle because we all know we're not holy. But God declares it so because Christ was the one and only sacrifice for sin necessary. And He did it for us. But we still sin. We choose to disobey God. We choose to do what we want. And that truth is expressed in verse 14. Because by one sacrifice He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So in that one verse, you have those two things. The one sacrifice He's made perfect forever, made all of us perfect forever, but we are still being made holy, it says. God is still working in you. He's still working in me. He's still rubbing down those rough edges in our souls and believing that Jesus doesn't make, believing in Jesus doesn't make us perfect, but it makes us a whole lot better than if we never believed in Him. Another way to explain this is to say that we are living between the two comings of Jesus. His coming the first time purified us. He offered the one sacrifice for sin. We are made holy, period. Full stop. But here we are still sinning, still waiting for Jesus to finish that work 
And in the end, it will happen. He'll come again. All of our sins will be declared gone. There will be no more sin. There will be more, no more death. Only eternal life and joy in His kingdom with Him forever. And all of this points to the reason for the season. Jesus came to live the life you and I can't live. We are not perfect. And He died the death we all deserve as a substitution for us once for all so that we could be made right with God forever. That is why we need Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, this is a sobering reality we've talked about this morning. Sin is our deep and pernicious problem. But Lord, it doesn't surprise You. It doesn't shock You. You know how wicked and bent on rebellion and disobedience we can be at times. But You have made a way. You've made a way for us to be forgiven. You've made a way for us to be declared holy and righteous and pure. You did it by sending Jesus. Thank You for Him. Thank You for Jesus and what He did for us through His death and resurrection. And Lord, may we lean into that truth that we have already been made holy and righteous. May that be our core identity as we live this week. May it fill us with joy. May it fill us with light and hope. And may it give us the opportunity to help other people understand our sin problem has been dealt with by Jesus. Thank You in His name. Amen.